Hello everyone, this is your host Rishikesh and welcome to the Makers Podcast by Remote Tools. Each episode we chat with entrepreneurs and indie makers who are building products for the remote working community. This podcast is powered by Flexible, a network of the top freelance developers and designers. We have a very special guest with us today. He started his own venture immediately after graduating from Stanford and got acquired in just a couple of years. Having worked in a remote setting for over two years after that, he realized the need for a virtual office for distributed teams and started building Prugly. Hey Vivek, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Hirshkesh. So Vivek, being an entrepreneur, you would have worked in a variety of functions. But what do you like doing the most? Is it engineering, marketing, sales, writing? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So for me, I'm an engineer by trade and I love it so much. Uh, and I would also sort of characterize myself as an introvert. So although, you know, the, the sort of function of a startup requires that you actually wear multiple hats, I, I love engineering. It's what I do when I'm you know, you're looking to, to create a new project or whatever else. And, you know, that was a little, that's essentially my role now. And like what I intend to sort of transition to as we sort right. of scale out with Bradley. Super. So let's just quickly go to the very beginning. Uh, tell us a little about your time at Stanford and how Stacksware happened. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just a little bit of context about myself. Um, mm. You know, I, I was raised by Indian American uh, parents, uh, sorry, Indian parents, and I'm in New American in, in Bakersfield, uh, and Bakersfield is sort of smack dab in the middle between San Francisco and, and uh, LA, and the, the big expanse of nothingness. It's right in the middle. Um, so I I was there, um, mm-hmm. very interested in, in computer science when I was young. I actually macroed RuneScape of all games, um, and that's sort of how I got into it. And uh, basically, that sort of love for computer science and just sort of uh, engineering in general kind of led me up down the path to, to uh, Stanford. And uh, basically moved up to Stanford and, uh, you know, still wasn't necessarily sure whether I wanted to pursue computer science or software engineering yet. But uh, there's just so many brilliant minds there, just all sort of gravitating to the subject. And all my friends were really interested in it. And then it would lend itself to actually just wanting to make side projects and all of that. So uh, quickly found myself gravitating towards uh, computer science. And then, um, yeah, stuck to all the classes for all four years. And uh, sort of in my fourth year, we actually uh, decided to make Stacksware. Wonderful. And this was, uh, if I'm not wrong, uh, a research project at Stanford itself, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it was, had a funny origin. So, uh, <laughs> you know, there was a few of us co-founders and uh, we, all good friends for the last few years, basically we came into the, the project saying, hey, you know, this is a, a great opportunity to sort of structure uh, incubating uh, a company. You know, we'll have resources to like, you know, talk to who was then our corporate sponsor, VMware at the time, uh, uh-huh. to, you know, get as many resources from them and get as many customer introductions as possible from them and also get, you know, class units for it and some sort of semblance of structure. So uh, we sort of really liked that component of it. And then uh, basically uh, there were a set of prompts that you had that each group inside of the, the, the uh, research sort of class had to choose and we just chose the one that was the most flexible that would allow us the most opportunities to sort of pivot from you know idea to idea um and the corporate sponsor for that was vmware so um yeah so it was a two quarter long sort of research course um about you know building a company and sort of pushing it out to, to customers so um yeah cs 210 with jay borenstein <laughs> Uh, so, uh, yeah. And then what's interesting is that, that Jay, it was, a uh, 
venture partner at uh, what is you know what is uh, Lightspeed right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Lightspeed Venture Partners, um, right. which is a you know, pretty prominent firm, and um, basically, you know, when he saw that we were getting some you know traction and a lot of customers were interested in what we were actually building, um, basically he he just sort of brought us in one day and dropped a term sheet on the table, and uh, wow. sort of being yeah yeah 21 22 years old at the time we were just <laughs> oh my god this is crazy like you know it's like uh, this, somebody wants to give us money to pursue our little project uh, exactly. so. Um, yeah, so at that point, you know, we, we took that and uh, uh, decided to sh- sort of shop the deal and got some VC meetings with other different firms like, you know, uh, Greylock and a couple others and decided to settle on a sort of $2 million round, uh, mostly led by uh, Lightspeed and the remaining amount led by us, uh, uh, participated in by Greylock. Wonderful. Uh, we'll come back to the, uh, you know, sort of the VC part of it, but just to, uh, so that our listeners understand it correctly, what, what was Stacksware about? Like, what was product about us? Yeah, 100%. It was um, it was an interesting product, and it was definitely a little bit outside of my wheelhouse. So when we were given this product with VMware to sort of explore the entire customer base that we had, uh, sure. a lot of our customer conversations came down to sort of on-premises software licensing. So, um, you know, in sort of big data center environments where software can't necessarily communicate back to a, a central server, well, like the vendor server to actually meter the software correctly, um, Basically, in that process, what happens is that normally these big sort of software vendors negotiate these license, like these contracts with uh, the companies that are buying their software to say, hey, um, since we can't actually meter this directly, we're going to have auditors come come on premises and then validate that you're actually using the software the way that you say that you're using it. Um, and basically, if you found that you're actually over, over out of compliance, which means that you know, you're using software more than you were actually ex- expected to be using it, let's say, you know, I have 500 licenses of Photoshop, and then it turns out that 505 people are using it inside of the data center. Um, basically, that's grounds for litigation. But what would more often happen is that'd be a leverage point for for the big vendor like Oracle or Microsoft to actually sell you some other crappy product that you didn't actually need. Mm-hmm. So basically, coming full circle, what we did was um, we uh, basically just preempted that. We like provided data and analytics to sort of say, hey, wh- are you out of compliance? Um, and also the flip side of that is like, are you actually using the software that, that, you know, you say you're using? Um, so that was the sort of flip side. So that was the cost savings and also the sort of risk mitigation. Right. Very interesting. And so $2 million funding round and then, you know, sort of a great traction that you see, but then after a couple of years, you decide to, you know, sort of exit or, you know, you get acquired. What was the rationale? What was playing on in your mind then? What happened exactly? Yeah. You know, it, it was a fascinating uh, time for us because, you know, I we were building a business and, you know, getting a decent amount of customers. But for us, we weren't growing at the sort of VC pace that is expected when you take venture capital from sort of these big institutional investors. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, how they make their bottom line is not having uh, a good business. They, they need a spectacular business that's doing, you know, 50 million to, you know, 100 million ARR after, you know, only four or five years. So, um we weren't growing necessarily at the, the rate that we wanted to, or like that was sort of acceptable for a VC-backed business. So with that in mind, um, yeah, we decided to sell and um, sold it to Avi Networks, which is uh, based out of San Jose. Super. So like, you know, this entire thing, your stint with Stacksware, what would be your key learnings from Stacksware? You know, so the biggest thing for us mm-hmm. is that, you know, if you're going to go down the, the sort of avenue of 
taking VC financing, which is a big, big commitment. That's a multi-year long commitment. So if anybody who's listening is in that position, they should definitely um, weigh that very, very carefully. Um, so the biggest thing is that like, if you're going to go down that route or any business idea, validate the market. You know, I, I think for us, the biggest thing is that on-premises software uh, metering, it was a problem, but it was also a declining market. So mm -hmm. for, for when we talk to customers, a lot of times they'd say, yes, this is a problem, but their, their thought process behind it was not like, how do I mitigate sort of software out of compliance or like reduce my software licenses? It was like, how do I get to the cloud? You know, that's the future, mm -hmm. right? How do I start consuming cloud-based software that's always updating? And I know exactly where I stand from sort of compliance and sort of pay perspective. Um, so that's one thing is just take sure. the extra time to validate the market talk to additional customers, see how much they're willing to pay um, and, and do the due diligence on that as much as possible. But do you sort of believe that, let's say you hadn't picked up the funding ground or if you had bootstrapped Stacksware entirely, uh, would the scenario have been different? I mean, would you have spent more time in validating things or like moving forward with Stacksware itself? Potentially, it's kind of hard to say in retrospect. I think, uh, you know, retrospect is sort of 2020, right? But I, there is definitely uh, there was definitely a, a big enough market to have a good sort of lifestyle business, and I think you know we sort of missed out on that opportunity by taking the, the venture capital. But mm -hmm. um, you know, so that's the biggest thing is like validate the market uh, and make sure that you know that and and the sort of capital that you raise or don't raise matches up with that expectation. Um, you know, I think the, the flip side is that you know if you sort of uh, don't raise money for a product or market that requires you to raise a lot of money, then you're you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot somewhat, right? Um, in certain cases, and you know, a lot of those cases, you can sort of figure out a sort of sub niche market for the, the from the bigger market, and then sort of craft a product in that sense. But um, yeah, I would just say like, what what is the sort of capital dynamics of that market, and and, and you know, are you uh, are you picking the right financing model, whether it's bootstrapped or VC, that that mm -hmm. matches. Great. And uh, so that the acquisition happened in 2017. What happened after that? Yeah. So, so it got, happened in 2017 at the end, tail end there. So the first thing we did was take a, took a couple weeks off. Because <laughs> I think at that time we were just grinding, man. Um, so we took a couple weeks off and then uh, moved down to San Jose. So we're currently living at, at San Francisco at the time. Um, and uh, basically... Um, you know, started uh, basically heading up the uh, Ubi's sort of SaaS side of the, the yeah. business. Um, yeah, like, so ba basically Ubi is a sort of data center, you know, enterprise load balancer. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, basically, uh, we were taking, use our experience from sort of like the sort of SaaS building the SaaS side of things and then translating mm -hmm. that product into, into a SaaS world. Interesting. And then you were sort of in a very different setting here, right? So you were working remotely for Avi. Right. So how, how was that experience? It was like for a couple of years, right? Starting 2007. Right. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. So mm -hmm. that was an interesting experience because like, you know, at a certain point we moved back up to, to San Francisco mm -hmm. after a few months. And um, yeah, what, firstly, I, we absolutely loved it, right? It was very flexible in terms of having our own sort of structure around our day. Um, we didn't have to do the soul sucking commute. I don't know if you've ever commuted in the Bay Area, but it really, really sucks. <laughs> Especially if you're going the distance that we were going from San Francisco to San Jose. So we, we had, you know, the, the Avi team liked us a lot. So we had this sort of leverage to sort of say, hey, you know, can we work remotely from here? And a lot of team members actually did work remotely. So um, the experience was good. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, for 
but of course it's not without problems, right? I think the, mm-hmm. the number one biggest thing is like social isolation, right? How do you sort of, I think people take for granted when they move into a remote setting, how much they actually need that, that social that contact from the day to day. When you go sort of nine to five without seeing anybody and then sort of move transition from working on something to like watching Netflix uh, and still nobody else is there, they wears on you after a while. So that was the first thing that became apparent after a sort of a um, uh, couple weeks period of time. And then the sort of second is like the, the depth of communication, right? So mm-hmm. um, when you're crossing time zones and also like, you know, a lot of the team was down in San Jose, so it's the same time zone. It's, but the sort of mechanics of the sort of office were very much like I pick up my laptop and I go over to your desk and we talk talk and hash something out at the desk, right? So mm-hmm. it's very easy in those scenarios whenever you're in a physical office to, to forget or have a brain lapse about the people who are working remotely and, and including them because they're out of, outside of your visual space. Mm-hmm. Um, so communication was a big problem as well. How do you sort of, you know, replicate the experience that we, that we did like a lot of sort of being inside of a physical office and, mm-hmm. and having those sort of ways of reaching people um, uh, with our team? So, and uh, since we were a hybrid structure, uh, it made that a lot more challenging. Absolutely. And then how did this sort of set up the stage for Pragli, which is your yeah, current? Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. So, uh, you know, the big thing for us is that uh, Doug and I are entrepreneurs, now, entrepreneurs at heart. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. it, it was kind of calling us to make the next company after a couple of years. So mm-hmm. um, that was a big motivator. And we sort of did this sort of roundup of all the different ideas that we had and uh you know this remote idea was what like one of the first i think that we had and uh we just sort of came and gravitated back to it just because uh uh we just love the space you know we're personally experiencing the problem that we had so we did a lot of validation with a lot of different remote teams before we sort of dove in and sort of told the other team that we were you know leaving to, to pursue this next idea mm-hmm. um so basically that's the origin of it you know we experienced the problem we did a little bit more validation with the sort of remote team uh, with more remote teams and said, hey, my communication is a huge problem. Um, and that was a sort of prompt. And then we decided to sort of quit and then and pursue that in a full-time capacity. Wonderful. And so Pragli is essentially a virtual office for remote or distributed teams. And uh, so I was talking to, uh, you know, Brenna from Duis the other day, and she was stressing on the importance of asynchronous communication, right? So how does, you know, Pragli you know, fit into the entire picture where, let's say, remote teams are focusing a lot on asynchronous communication? Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is a little bit of Doug and mine sort of, I wouldn't say contrarian philosophy because yeah. asynchronous matters a lot. But um, the idea that's being promoted inside of remote teams right now is, is first of all, it's great, right? I think you do, especially when you're move, working across time zone, need far more asynchronous communication than you normally have. Right. Needs to happen. You need yeah. to document all the conversations you have and it's super, super important. But ultimately, when you look at the problems that the top problems that are that a lot of remote teams are facing right now, they're mm-hmm. facing social isolation problems and sort of depth of communication problems, right? Uh, and like you could say that asynchronous solves a lot of the sort of second point, right? But there's another component which is just like how do I reach somebody quickly? Like the reality is is that you can sort of like think up a technical spec in your mind and say, hey, like here are all the details that I have. I'm gonna give this to to my sort of like team lead and then, or like another engineer and they're gonna go like deliver on it, right? But the reality is that engineering is is very iterative. You know, mm-hmm. like the, inevitably there's gonna be some problem arises. And sometimes you just need to hash that out of a call. And, and a lot of times those calls are less than sort of two to five minutes long. 
So mm -hmm. we think that's, you know, uh, and what we do with Pragly is enable those communications to have a lot, happen a lot more quickly. And two also, and the second point of this is like, how do you facilitate those sort of impromptu social um, opportunities that you normally have inside of a physical office, like the sort of water cooler level conversations where a lot of the sort of beautiful conversation happens about, about like, you know, about bonding with your team or actually, um, you know, like uh, thinking of new creative ideas for, for projects that you that you can go and implement. Um, so that was the prompt. And that's what I think that certain asynchronous culture does not sort of provide for right now is like, you know, they'll have sort of structured happy hours over, you know, like at 5 p.m. on a Thursday, but it's it's not enough. You need, you need that sense of presence to really feel bonded with your team. And and that's where probably fits into the, the, the sort of equation. That's true. That's true. Actually, very rightly said, as in virtual office sort of goes hand in hand with the asynchronous communication rather than sort of competing directly with it in a way, right? So exactly. uh, also help us sort of picture how would, uh, you know, how does Pragli look like? As in you spoke a lot about, let's say, watercular conversations, uh, mimicking them, or let's say impromptu ones, official meetings, or even there is a concept of silent rooms in Pragli, right? Just a right. quick picture of how it looks like or you know what what is yeah. the structure that's a really really great point so, so our inspiration for how the product looked like actually we pulled from uh, are, are you uh, aware of discord yes 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 absolutely yeah yeah so huh. uh basically during a lot of our conversations with teams we uh we realized they were sort of hacking discord to sort of do what Pragly is doing right now, which is sort of getting that sort of like all like that sense of presence with your team. And the reason why they were able to do this is because uh, Discord had this idea of audio channels. And even if you weren't inside of audio channel, you can see who was in those channels and participate in them if, if you were available. Um, mm -hmm. So basically, we translated that idea from Discord into what well, we have Pragly. So just giving a high level view of Pragly, right. sort of a visual board. It's kind of a, a standard three pane view, similar to Slack, where you have your sort of teams on the left hand side and you have your audio channels in the second pane. And in your third pane, you have all the people inside of your office. Mm -hmm. And you can sort of, uh, you know, click on any of them and start like you we can click on one of your teammates and start a conversation with them, uh, mm -hmm. direct conversation with them. And then basically your audio goes through to them immediately and they're muted on the other side. So that's the, the corollary in the Slack world or or Discord world would be a, a direct message. Um, so to be used in certain situations, like you know, some some teams have more of a culture about using the DMs than others, but we sort of leave it to the sort of teams to, to, to figure out the mechanics that work best for them. And the sort of impromptu synchronous dynamics of the product have it actually in, in the audio channels. So basically, if I go into the silent room or the water cooler or my virtual office hours room, basically I'm sending out a sort of, uh, you know, um, impromptu, like, well, I'm sending out a social signal, which just says like, you know, I'm inside of the water cooler, I'm available for a break. And if anybody wants to come and hang out with mm -hmm. me, they can. If I'm inside of the silent room, that means, hey, I'm heads down right now. But if anybody yeah. else wants to join me and feel like they're actually working together towards a, like a go shared goal more so than they were before, um, they can also do that. So it's almost like the idea of going to a coffee shop to get work done versus actually being inside of your room alone. Um, even though you're not talking to anybody necessarily, that, that sense of presence is super important to sort of solidify the mission. Right. And I, I also saw a lot of gamification into the product as well. What, what, what's your take on that? As in like, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, what we quickly realized from our analytics is that um, we were running into a problem that a lot of communication problems face, which is the empty room problem, where... Mm -hmm. 
basically uh, when somebody signs into Pragly, right? Like they, they look around, they're excited by what they see, but to get the real value from the product, you actually really need to start a conversation with somebody. You need to see the, the, the sort of communication dynamics that happen when you have a, a team of even two people or more. Um, so the biggest challenge for us was like, how do you actually um, get people to invite another teammate into the product, right? So uh, the gamification that we built in, and you know, uh, this is generally the direction that we're trying to go with sort of channels is, is um, to enhance the sort of single user mode experience of the product. So we actually even built in something like a, a trivia channel, which is basically wow. an audio video ch channel as we normally have inside of Pragly, but uh, just enhanced. So like, you know, it's like a trivia game that's actually played inside of that particular channel. Um, and, you know, they can play that in a single player mode. So it's just, it's just something, it's some additional value that gets you more hooked with the product that reminds you, lets you remember it a little bit longer and perhaps you'll actually um, go and invite people. Great. And uh, so let's talk a little about the current stage that Pragly is and it's still in beta, right? So like how many customers do you have? What's the traction that you've seen at, till this point? Right. Yeah. So we're in beta right now and we aren't asking our customers to pay right now because we're in growth mode. We want them to be using it in all different sort of use cases. Um, there will be a free tier between like mm -hmm. probably between three and five people priced. And then beyond that, we'll we start paying per head. Um, but right now we really, really are in growth mode. So right now we have around 50 weekly active teams. Um, and of those 10 to 15 using it fairly religiously uh, per day. So that, and those, those teams are sort of using it in the sort of mechanics that, that we expect them to, which is the sort of, um, you know, staying in eight hours a day and actually using it fairly frequently. That is um, but I should say, uh -huh. uh, since we started around five months ago, the first three months uh -huh. of those really spent a lot of time developing the actual product. So only over the last two months have we really, really been pushing on the sort of sales and marketing perspective. And mm -hmm. uh, like, actually, I think around a month ago, we had less than sort of, I think 15 weekly active teams. So we're really, really trying to grow right now. No, that's amazing. And like the uh, entire conscious decision around not having customers pay, that's also really great to hear. Uh, now, what are the core marketing channels for you at this point? As in like, what, what is your plan moving forward in terms of reaching out to remote or distributed teams? Yeah, yeah. So we tried a bunch of different stuff. And I, and I think uh, super important for anybody who's listening who has like, you know, their own company to try different things just put it all out on the board um, and see what sticks but for us what's really worked has been the sort of uh blogging about our journey um and putting that out there on hacker news and, and developing really high quality content to mm -hmm. where you know it, it can be picked up by these sort of hacker news outlets and then sort of featured because once it's featured then then you get sort of tens of thousands of people coming to your site which is awesome yeah. And that's been a great source of traffic for us. But of course, we definitely know that it's not a sort of sustainable path towards uh, you know, continuous adoption. Um, that's why we're investing a lot in content that's actually going to SEO for particular keywords. Um, and then you know, hopefully over time, then we just really get that organic search. Um, and then also we're starting to see a sort of a, an element of sort of word of mouth. Uh, you know, certain teams have actually like heard about us from, from other teams. So um, that's an element there. Uh, we haven't sort of gamified that in terms of referrals or anything, uh, but... The biggest channel we have is, um, you know, sort of developing these blog posts or interactive products that we can then mm -hmm. market. So to give you an example of that, um, actually, Doug, uh, my co-founder, pushed out uh, a recent sort of uh, interactive application, which was basically a product hunt leaderboard. Um, it actually got, uh, you know, number five product of the, the day yesterday. So we were super excited about that. Uh, and it got, got a bunch of traffic. And a lot of that traffic went back to the site. 
So, um, and some of those translated into sort of team uh, team usage. So, um, that's the big thing is like sort of providing value to your target audience, but it doesn't necessarily have to be direct value in the remote space. So like, for example, product time people, a lot of them actually work out of offices, but a lot of them actually work remotely as well. So I think uh -huh. because of the nature of our product, it, you know, it allows, um, you know, there's at least some component of, you know, remote people inside of that sort of indie hacker community, of course. So uh, if you provide value to that community, eventually you'll develop your brand and people will start to recognize you a little bit more. Absolutely. And you also have your own newsletter, which is targeted at, you know, the remote working community in general, where do you see it going as like, what's your plan or objective with the newsletter itself? Yeah. So currently with our newsletter, it's more designed around people that we have had some sort of interaction with, uh, whether it's, you know, we, cause we did try a bunch of, you know, cold emailing as well, which didn't have the best return. Um, but even still, like every time they would interact with us, like sort of positively or negatively, we add them to the list uh, after we asked them, of course. Um, and also a bunch of people who are organically signing up after they sort of found or interactive applications or blog posts. Um, and one thing that we realized with this is that there's just because somebody sees your product and mm -hmm. doesn't sort of sign up right then and there doesn't mean that they're lost forever as a customer. Absolutely. I think brands, mm -hmm. brands take a, like a multi-touch approach. That's the only way it's going to work now. So, mm -hmm. um, and a newsletter is mostly designed for the sort of n greater than equal to like greater than one touch right like every stage after that to reinforce the product in, in their minds um so every time we push out a newsletter like people who we thought either sort of churned or weren't interested all of a sudden start signing up so um i think uh you know i, I think you, you capture the base of people who showed a remote amount of interest and then re-engaging them so that's the that's the primary use case for for the newsletter um, and it's it's sort of great to see uh, you sort of trying out channels like uh, Hacker News, Product Hunt, Newsletter, Content Plan, uh, you know, in order to reach to the target audience as well as, you know, the audience in general. It's amazing to see. Um, and like now coming to Pragli, like what, what is the biggest challenge that you see at the moment for Pragli? Like in terms of product or marketing or what's the biggest challenge that it's facing? Yeah. So mm -hmm. I would say the biggest right now is, you know, how do we get people to stick inside of the product long enough to invite their teams. That's what I, I would say is, is the biggest one. So a lot of uh, those can be product improvements, those can be gamification improvements, but um, that's the first one, right? And I, I think we're, we're planning to add a lot more features around sort of user engagement slash like ways for people to interact with the product more so as a single player, even if it's setting it up, you know, setting up the office, quote unquote, for, for the team who came, comes later on after they've been invited things like that. Um, that's the, the number one most important. Um, but the second more than that is, um, uh, I think it, the biggest will be like, how do you sort of get that organic traction without continually having to make another app or another blog post, right? So mm -hmm. things like ranking on SEO is something yeah. that we really, really want to do, right? So, I mean, I think that the golden keyword that everybody's trying to go after is work from home right now, just because that's what everybody searches when they think of remote, right? So like yeah. what are other you know permutations of work mm -hmm. from home slash like other longer tail keywords that we can sort of like hone in on and um, sort of rank for that gets us the sort of consistent sign up usage uh, without having to you know necessarily put additional effort beyond that. Um, of course you have to make you know have to make sure that your blog is all up to date and then you keep maintaining your domain authority, of course, otherwise you're gonna slip on those rankings. But um, like how do we get to that initial amount where we're starting to rank in the top 10 
for those keyboards. Absolutely. And uh, so it's, it's just you and Doug currently working on the product, right? Working on Pragli. Yep. Super. And both of you, given our engineers, who do you think would be your next hire as in like in what function? Yeah, it, it's, uh, we always fantasize about this, right? Um, so, uh, you know, we have uh, one very serious one, which is a QA person. So, ah. you know, for, for us, you know, we're constantly shipping out product, but both Doug and I, even though I gravitate more to the engineering side than Doug does, mm -hmm. uh, we're both engineers. We're constantly pushing out new features, new, new sort of improvements to the product. And it becomes very, very laborious, especially if you want to keep pushing it out at a fast cadence to, to manually test everything. And honestly, it's really kind of untenable to have those sort of automated tests without like taking a serious into your bandwidth. Um, so I honestly, I'd probably hire a QA person who just, you know, they, they look at the product and we give them a laundry list of things that they need to test edge cases and we just push product. Um, and then basically come back to us with a, with a list of bugs that, that we introduced or, or, you know, maybe it's perfect. Um, that would probably be the number one biggest thing that we could probably do to sort of improve our bandwidth. Cause that's a massive context switch for us right now. And, and we'd prefer not to bear that. Um, and then in terms of the, the next type of person we'd hire, and uh, you probably noticed this from our, our homepage, uh, but we actually have these sort of configurable avatars. Um, and basically the idea there is to sort of uh, give a, a First of all, a quirky element and, and funner element to the product, and we actually, you know, sort of show presence uh, based on those avatars. We either like gray it out or like gray, sorry, fade it out or fade it in, depending right. on whether you're actually there. Um, so one thing when we actually initially made those, we thought that uh, they were going to be considered pretty gimmicky, but it turns out people loved it. You know, they love the ability to sort of craft their own digital identity and sort of show their friends and in a quirky way. Um, mm -hmm. So I think we could even make serious sort of uh, improvements to that. Like how do, how do you, you know, like make additional assets for those little avatars that, you know, additionally make uh, that personalization stronger. Uh, maybe people can get a balloon on their birthday or like, you know, set their background to be some like, cartoon-esque background of where, where they are, like whether it's LA or SF or India or whatever else, you know, so. Um, and, you know, a lot of illustrators, they don't, uh, really good ones, you know, you can get for fairly cheap. Um, so that's, that's more on the, the sort of fun side. And of course, you know, the additional marketers just sort of help us with sort of content creation. I think, uh, good quality content creation that we can start ranking on those important keywords. Wow. So at least three new hires you're looking at. Well, hope you find the best of talent in each. That brings us to the end of our conversation with Vivek. It was an intriguing chat and we learned a lot in the process. Absolutely. Rishikesh. Um, if any parting uh, words for, for makers is just uh, to go out and validate the market um, and make sure you do that and they'll pay serious dividends. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. For our listeners, you can try out Vivek's product at pragli.com. It also hosts an engaging blog, newsletter and a couple of other interesting products. So do take a look. Until next time.